Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So let's bring her up with an enormous round of applause. Eden Lepaki. This is so terrifying. Um, thank you, Mary. That was a really beautiful introduction. First of all, Mary was my student as well as my friend, and she's a great writer. And she should revise her book, Out Girls, so we can all celebrate it here. Right. Hear that, Mary? <laughs> um, thank you also to Skylight Books for hosting me and for always being such a big support and for paying me to come here when I lived around the corner. Um, and thank you all for coming. Really, I might cry. But I'm not. I'm gonna have like a Halle Berry moment where I like. <laughs> if only I look like Halle Berry. Um, <laughs> say that again. Um, I'm not gonna read from the opening chapter, um, but it, just so you know, Frida hoards a secret turkey baster, which is great actually because I don't have a turkey baster, and it's really hard to baste something without a turkey baster. So I'm gonna use this in my kitchen. Thanks, guys. Um, I'm gonna read from about four chapters into the novel. I'm going to try to give you all the information I remember that I have to give you to follow. But I might have to stop and explain more. Um, so Frida and Cal, they live, takes place in the future. They live out by themselves. Their nearest neighbors, the Millers, Sandy and Bo, and their kids have committed suicide under s mysterious circumstances before the novel opens. Um, and when the novel opens, Frida finds out she's pregnant or she believes that she's pregnant. You know how biology works. I won't have to describe that to you. Um, Frida's brother Micah was a suicide bomber who blew up the Hollywood and Highland Mall a few years back. And the only other person I think you need to know are August is the only person they see now. He's the trader who comes on a horse-drawn carriage with junk to trade. I think that's all you need to know. Um, so at this, in this scene, Frida and Cal have just had an argument. She wants to go find other people because she's like, dude, we're pr I'm pregnant. She wouldn't say we're pregnant. I'm pregnant. Um, we need help. Let's, what's beyond our swath of the woods? And he doesn't want to. So she's pissed off in the morning and she goes to do... My sister's already like all teary-eyed over there. <laughs> um, so she goes off to do laundry at the creek. It's going to take like eight minutes, this reading, you guys. Don't worry. Once I went to a reading and the, the author was like, this is a 39-minute story. Um, okay, so she's doing laundry at the creek. Is the microphone okay? Frida pulled the pants out of the bag again and shook them so they hung straight. She walked over to the big rock and lay them flat against it, across its surface. It wasn't time to go yet. She wasn't finished. Cal wanted Frida to be pregnant. 
And Frida wanted that too, if she was honest with herself. It felt like a dare, the biggest, most important risk of all. Micah, her brother, would think so. Before the group ruined him, when his mind was still open, fluorescent as plankton, he might have written her a letter that said, go ahead, believe in it, don't get all afraid on me. I'm not afraid, she said aloud. The way her voice sounded in the morning air made her turn around. Was it some desire for a reply? No one was there, just the trees. This didn't surprise her, but she did feel disappointed, as if she'd been stood up. But by whom? The creek rushed along, oblivious, and across the water the forest waited. She and Sandy used to go foraging there, but they always stopped before, before getting in too deep, before the land became alien. In a moment, she had the mesh bag full of Cal's socks, and she was crossing the creek. The trees seemed to step aside to let her into the darkness. After you, they whispered. She walked farther in a direction she'd never gone. But there was a path here, slightly overgrown, and she saw the track marks of August's carriage. She knew he carried a scythe to cut away brush as he traveled. It was as if he had cleared the way for her. She draped a single sock on the branch of a tree. The fabric was gray and thin, and it had once belonged to Beau. Now it was a crumb that would lead her back. Hilda, that's her mom, Hilda and Dada and Micah would be a fairy tale to her baby, but for Frida, this world here, the afterlife, was the fairy tale. If she wasn't careful, Frida would be eaten by a witch at the end of her journey. In a few moments, August's tracks, August's tracks led to a narrow trail, thick redwoods on either side. Frida paused, hands clenching the bag of socks. She sighed. I'm not afraid, she said again, as if to remind herself. She placed a red sock on a branch and kept walking. Every few minutes or so, she left a piece of clothing for herself to find her way back. And she would find her way back. The longer she walked, the more her chest tightened. She'd felt like this before, driving lost in L.A., her navigator and her device dead. She'd, pl she'd passed through a rough neighborhood hoping to find something familiar so she could breathe again, blink again, though by the end every neighborhood that wasn't a community was rough. She was alert in that same way now. She had to pay attention or she might get turned around, never find the thread of the route. The clothing wouldn't be any help if she headed in the wrong direction. She had created a system. Colored, colored clothes meant turn back, turn right. Black and white ones meant turn left and gray, head straight. She kept her eyes on the landmarks, the tiny stream, the vines choking a thick trunk, a lone crocus. After she had walked for about an hour, she saw something white up ahead. She quickened her pace even if she wanted to turn around. It was a bathtub with claw feet like a beast's. The inside was rusted out and filled with brown rainwater, green algae floating on its surface. Something jagged snagged Frida's throat and she swallowed it down. Here was, an, here was evidence of other people. A person had abandoned this here. What was she doing? She had to pee and she only had two pairs of socks left. If Cal came to find her at the creek, maybe to talk, he would worry. And then later he'd be so angry. She had to turn around before she came upon other objects, before someone stepped in her path with a weapon. Hold on, I have to breathe. <sighs> but first, she hiked up her dress and squatted next to the tub. She pulled down her leggings and peed. There was an atavistic relief to this, and her eyes watered from the pleasure. The end of the world couldn't take this tiny joy away from her. She was a dog marking her territory. Frida was here. 
As she stood, pulling up her leggings, her dress falling back to her ankles, a sound caught her attention. Something like a crunch, like someone stepping on fallen leaves. She froze, that jagged thing rising in her throat once more. Hello, she whispered. No answer. Relax, she told herself. It's nothing. Couldn't be. But still, she thought she felt a presence not far from where she stood. Something, someone was watching her, its breath shaping the molecules between them. She was breathing in that same air. She stepped away from the bathtub. She would hurry back to the creek and then return to Cal. Nothing had happened. She was safe. From behind a tree, another crunch. The sound came from her left, and she turned. A coyote. It was standing there, watching her. It didn't look like the starving ones that used to skulk around L.A., desperate for a cat to eat some garbage scraps. This one was well-fed, big, with coarse brownish-gray fur that looked prickly to the touch. If Frida didn't know any better, she might think she'd, she might think she'd run into a strange dog, tall and eerie-eyed. It was so still, a bird caught above them. Frida couldn't remember what she was supposed to do, yell at it to go away, or step back quietly, or run like mad. This animal wasn't huge, but it could hurt her. The coyote let out a rasping sound. Its eyes arrowed into her, and Frida noticed an animal at its haunches. Something dead and small, a rabbit maybe. I don't want it, Frida whispered. She already had a hand on her stomach. Already she needed to keep her child away from this. She could feel the fear growing on her like a skin, a mold. She could smell it. The coyote pawed at its meat, rasped again. The dead thing had been torn down the middle and flattened like roadkill, limp and bloodied. The, co the coyote turned back to her, and Frida read its body, saw that it would pounce if she didn't get away. Above them, the bird cawed once more. Frida turned and ran. On her way out of the forest, away, 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 she grabbed every piece of clothing she saw, held them in her arms as if they could protect her. Hold on. Everybody with me? <sighs> you look like a burglar, Cal said as she approached the house with the wet bag of laundry on her back. Help me with these, she said. She was still shaking. Sure thing. Cal grabbed the coiled rope hanging from the side of the house, stretched it to the tree across the yard, and hooked it. He kept looking back at, she, back at her as he did so, as if trying to figure out what was different about her, as if she'd just returned from the beauty parlor. Are you all right, he asked, when they were side by side at the line. No, she said. Please don't tell me you're still pissed at me. Frida shook her head. It's not that. Just now, after I finished the clothes, I went into the forest. You did what? We need to find other people. They're nearby. I know it. He didn't answer. She squeezed his hand hard. Don't lie to me. Why are you being so careless, he asked. Why are you being so duplicitous, she said. He smirked. Good word. I'm pregnant, Cal. So now you're sure about that? Would you rather I be sick? She let go of his hand and pulled one of Sandy's old dresses from the laundry bag. It was wrinkled and cold. He pulled it away from her. Let me, he said. Just tell me what you know, she said. Cal closed his eyes and the dress in his hands. She could tell by the way his face scrunched up that she almost had him, that he'd do exactly what she said. He wanted to tell her. He almost dropped the dress, but she grabbed it. I just washed this, she whispered. Please don't get it dirty. I should have told you as soon as Bo, Bo told me, Cal said. What do you mean? Frida thought of the coyote and the animal it had killed. Let's go inside, Cal said, and put a hand on her lower back. Thank you.
Does anyone have any questions? Come on, I only read for eight minutes. <laughs> Katie. This novel, um, not directly. Um, I, the Handmaid's Tale is one of my favorite books by Margaret Atwood, so that like informed my whole life after I read it. I just love that novel so much. Um, uh, I feel like everything I ever read becomes part of my way of thinking as a writer. So I guess you could just I could just name all the writers that I love, like Tom Drury or Laurie Moore or Jennifer Egan, um, and just kind of like put them in the stew, and they're kind of inspired me for this book. I actually uh, intentionally tried not to read any dystopian novels while I was writing, just to stay away from, just so I wouldn't copy them. So now I need to go back and read so many, and I, so many lately have been recommended to me, so my list is getting really long, because there's so many ones that sound incredible. Why were you inspired by this idea? Yeah, I have this pro it's not so much right now, but sometimes I have this problem like I'll be making pasta or something and I'll have this line that's like she didn't want to be cooking the pasta. <laughs> and I'm like that is a horrible story. Let's not <laughs> that's not write that one. Um so I don't this one there's a couple things that came to me that made me want to write it. This is really pretentious, but the phrase post-apocalyptic domestic drama like walked into my head and I was like, "Oh, that sounds so in I mean, it sounds so annoying." But at the time I thought it was so fascinating and I was like, "Oh, I should write that sounds so interesting and then um, one time I was driving on sunset and the street lights were burnt out and it was really dark and I just started thinking about what would it be like if LA just kind of stopped working functioning the, the roads weren't fixed there were no street lights there was no electricity gas was so expensive what so I kind of extrapolated from there I really started with Frida and Cal I was doing a writing exercise with my students where I had them put a character in a a room with a possession that they that nobody knew they had and I was like oh this lady has a turkey baster. <laughs> and I was like, why would she have a turkey baster? And then it just kind of went from there. I try not to plan out too much when I'm starting out. Just go. If I think too hard about something, it usually just dies. <laughs> it becomes, she didn't want to make the pasta. <laughs> Zan? <laughs> You know, I get asked this question because it has scared a lot of people, much to my delight. Um, but why, when I was actually writing it, I was not scared. I think I, I really enjoyed the challenge of the world building because it wasn't something that I was used to. I was used to writing about people talking in a room, but beyond that room of creating, like the devastation of a city was not something that I was used to. So that part was actually kind of a thrill. It, it was either a thrill or it was a total pain in my ass, but it was never that scary. I think there would be moments when I would stop and think about it and I would kind of get the chills about certain elements. Um, but in some ways, it sort of was like a, a stay. It was a stay against all the things that I was freaked out about. I just, I sort of, there was a release in writing about it. And now I get to scare everyone else. <laughs> Other questions? Uh, so is there a second level in the work? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, there is, but it's not related to this novel. I'm writing contempt. I'm thank God for a little while. I don't have to be in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, so I'm writing a book about. I hope just saying right now, it's about ladies. <laughs> it's about women in LA, <laughs> in contemporary LA. And one day maybe I'll write something. I, I, there is a part of me that has a story idea that continues this, but I think I need a little breather from it to go. I mean, I guess as much as it didn't scare me, it is kind of intense. To, and also an, the fictional exercise of imagining it is, it's a relief not to have to do that right now. <laughs> yeah, um, this may be a bit of a dumb question, but I'm just curious about your like, routine as a writer, like a day. A day. She's asking about my routine as a writer. Um, okay, well, right now I'm not writing. <laughs> when I, if I were to be writing, um, well, I have a three-year-old, um, so I usually write um, after I drive my hun- husband to the train. St- I live in a John, John Cheever story now. I drive my husband to the station, and then I the train station, and then I drop my son off at daycare. He goes four days a week, so I try to write between about 9.15 to 12.15, sometimes longer if it's going well, sometimes not as long if it's going horribly, and I just want to bathe in jello or something to stop it. That was so weird. I don't know why I thought so that. Um, and so I try to get at least three hours, and then I turn off the internet, and I buckle down. And then I usually don't, unless I, I usually only have about three to four hours in me as a fiction writer, and then I have to do other things, whether it's writing nonfiction for the millions, answering emails, doing, I run a writing workshop, LA writing school, so doing things related to that, I kind of have to switch gears. Um, when I just went to UCross, which is a writing residency where I started California, and that they give you all day to work and they deliver you lunch and cook you dinner. It's just this miraculous, beautiful place. And there I can write for like nine hours, but that's only because I know it's a temporary thing. I don't think I could do nine hours for my whole life. You in the back, sir. Yeah, Oh, you know, I don't. I work off my rough draft. Um, Lauren Groff, who wrote Arcadia, which is a beautiful novel, she told me she handwrites her whole book and then, like, burns that draft and then starts over. <laughs> I was like, "You're a genius," <laughs> but I am not you. Um, I write. I pretty much write. Um, straight into the computer um, and then I usually go to my notebook and I write notes by hand and then I often print out pages and write notes in the margins and then I re- I save it. Sometimes if I'm do- revising a smaller section um, I will rewrite it from scratch, retype it, but I always have the original available to me. Um, but this book in particular I really learned more than I ever thought about revising and the value of revising because I revised it two times pretty heavily with my editor and just learned a lot about the rewriting process and just that that idea that you can you can re-enter the text and you can make it better and you can continue to be excited about it. I just felt like I'd be like I can't do this anymore and then I would keep doing it. It was sort of, it was just, I learned so much that I was always like talking a big talk to my students about revision, but I didn't know shit. (laughs) Now I know it. Lisa. Thanks. Ooh, nice. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about character. Um, I recently read an interview with Jeffrey uh, Eugenics. 
I'm probably in the middle of those two. I would say I tend to like to write wholesale fictional characters only because I think it's harder to take a, not, a real person and make them into fiction. That just seems impossible. Humans are so incredibly strange and we contain multi multiples and I think it would just be really hard to put that those people I know on the page. It seems daunting. People who write nonfiction, I salute you. Um, but at the same time, these characters that spring from that are fictional still spring from my consciousness and my experience. Like I, somebody has, somebody's famous said, you know, I don't really believe write what you know, but I like to say write what you want to know. So sort of writing as investigation into people, um, but you can't really write what you don't know because you don't know it. <laughs> so I, I don't start with a real person. I sort of just, they just kind of come to me in the scene, but definitely there's parts of them that are are me, they all spring from me, and I might take little things from people. But I don't say, like, Lisa Sanchez, she's interesting, I'm going to put her in a scene, because I wouldn't deign to be, to capture all of you on the page, you know? It just seems too hard. But I always say that a character should um, precede the text and proceed the text, so that it, they shouldn't just feel like they can exist only in the scene, that they should have a life beyond the page. And so if I really grapple with my characters on that level, they are really like, they have a full, gross humanity that I'm just getting like a sliver of. There was another handheld up here. Oh my god. <laughs> Emily, then Dina, then Chris. And then I'll look over here. <laughs> Thanks. I have no compassion. How intentional it is that your writing takes place in Los Angeles and you see a role in yourself as an author to pay homage to the city. Good question. I really like to write about LA. Uh, I think the city is so bizarre and wonderful and horrible and great, and I'm from here. Um, I haven't lived very many other places for very long, so I don't write, feel ready yet to write about other places. I do feel a kind of campaign to keep LA in literature. You know, that, that does seem important to me. But I always, my husband and I laugh because I have like the same kind of house in all my fiction. It's like a three-story, one-bedroom, Spanish Mediterranean house. <laughs> and I just, I just can't get out of that abode. Um, so I think it's just writing from experience in that way, writing what I know, but also feeling like I want to be part of like a rich tradition and get our great city on the page more. Dina? Oh my god. Uh, the, my favorite book actually is my best friend, Edith Wharton. Uh, the House of Mirth. Oh my god. 
God, you guys should all read that if you haven't. Probably all of you read it. You're like, oh, you're such a Philistine. You only read that this year. But it is an amazing book. I read it when I was at UCross, and I hadn't read, I like to say, ye olden literature for a while, sadly. I'd really been just absorbing and like lapping up contemporary novels mostly. But I found Lily Bart, the protagonist, to be so complicated. I mean, talk about characterization that just in a single paragraph makes you feel six different things about one person. I, I mean... And there was another guy there named Bill who was a writer too. And we would wake up really early, so we were buddies before we would go writing at UCross. And we would just be like, Lily Bart, oh God. And he'd be like, did you get to the ending? I could barely stand it. And I, would, I remember running and be like, I finished it. I finished it. Oh, Lily Bart. So I recommend it. <laughs> Chris. Uh, well, this sort of follow-up to like more questions ago. But um, <laughs> you were saying you learned a lot about revising. Did you learn anything? From this book, um, I learned a lot. I feel like I, they always say, and I think it's true, I've seen it from my friends and students, like you're a better writer at the end of writing a book than you are at the beginning because you learn a lot through the process and every single book is a different book with a different set of problems. Um, I learned a lot about world building. Um, I learned a lot about pacing and withholding of information. Um, I think my next book is going to be better plotted from the get-go because I learned so much about it from this book. Um, those are the main things that I learned. Yeah. Hold on. You already asked one, buddy. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun to listen about the process, but let's Thanks. talk a little bit about business studies. Let's talk about it. <laughs> You're talking about, you know, I see in paper books, and that's like, I love bookstores, like everybody here, I assume, but everybody's going to digital. So first of all, talk a little about the process, and you actually got somebody to pay you to <laughs> it's amazing, and you didn't go straight to, to, to iTunes. So a little bit about that, yeah. about you know, the choices that you're making, and the choices that you're making. Yeah, um, well, um, I tried to sell another book before this book, and oh, he wants to know, you know, people are going digital, and they are not reading paper books. That's his theory, at least. Um, and uh, how I got my book published, and how, what it will happen in the future. So, um, so yeah, I didn't sell another book, and some people were like, you should just self-publish. And I was, I just didn't feel like I could be the person to both publish, to write my book, and be its main advocate. I just thought that that's a skill that I don't have necessarily, and didn't really want to have that role. And I thought, you know what, that book didn't get published because, one, maybe it wasn't the most commercial idea. There was a butt plug in it. <laughs> um, but now you really want to read it, you sickos. Um, but... I just don't think it was good enough. At the end of the day, I think I wrote a better book and I published the right book. So I'm glad I didn't put that out before I was really ready. Um, in between not selling that book and selling this book, I had a novella out, which is for sale somewhere around here. I saw it. It has little granny panties on the cover. And that was actually a really incredible experience. Dina Drewis is here. Um, and just her getting her edits and her feedback, I just would always want that from somebody. Um, and then I wrote this book and it sold. Um, and I've gotten so much support from Little Brown, besides them paying me whole cold hard cash. Um, they edit, she, my editor is a first time editor, it's her first book. It's really important to her. She put her all on this book. She was so dedicated to this book. The publicists at Little Brown, like, 
they know what they're doing. <laughs> so I just feel like I've been taken care of there in a way that I couldn't take care of myself. Um, and I read digital books sometimes, but I like to read in the bathtub, and I'm really messy. So having something expensive in my hands that is also a book is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Okay, two more questions. Uh, I would like to know, um, to ask you about Amazon, um, because your novel became kind of famous in advance before yeah. kind of Amazon banned. And, and since you've been working in a, in a great bookstore like this one, um, how was your attitude uh, to Amazon before? Yeah, um, it's it's a so he's asking about Amazon and my feelings about Amazon and how my book became famous because of Amazon, etc. Um, I feel. I, it's a really, I feel a lot of mixed emotions because I'm really obviously thrilled that this happened, that I was on a TV show with somebody famous waving my book around and that's a, and all these pre-orders. I mean, it's really spectacular. Um, at the same time, I'm not the only, uh, only Hachette author, so there's a lot of authors whose books couldn't get pre-ordered and I feel really bad about that and I want the dispute to be over. Um, I worked at BookSoup before I worked at Skylight. My husband worked at Romans for a long time, which are all LA bookstores, so I don't shop at Amazon. I don't really buy books at Amazon unless I can't find it elsewhere. I just really like bookstores and you know, I'm a fan of saying like if you go to a bookstore and you don't like the bookstore, like don't shop there. It's not a charity. You go to a bookstore because it's awesome and it's a good business and you want it, you want it to be in your neighborhood. So I'm lucky enough to have bookstores around me that I love. Um, my husband works for Goodreads, which is now owned by Amazon, so that's a little <laughs> twist in the plot. <laughs> But I use Goodreads. If you are a Goodreads user, we should become friends. I love it. I use Goodreads, and then I buy my books at a bookstore. And I don't really like Amazon. <laughs> Jameson. Can you talk a little more about the uh, author-editor relationship? Like the what? The author-editor relationship you said was so important. Yeah. Hello? Um, so what happened with my book, at least, is my editor, my agent sent my book around to various publishing houses, and it, my book actually got sent to my current editor, Allie. It got sent to her boss, and Allie, my editor, read the book, as I think a lot of assistant editors read what their bosses are getting in on submission, and she just, like, went crazy for the book. She loved it. And so her, her boss gave her permission to bid on it, um, and we talked on the phone, and I just really liked what she had to say about the book, and she just seemed so passionate. Um, she's a baby. I could, like, babysit her. <laughs> Not really. She's very mature, but she makes me look like an elderly person. Um, and, but she's, so she's very young, extremely driven, and so sharp, and uh, so I thought she really is supporting this book, and Little Brown publishes some of my favorite writers, so I was like, I'm going to go with Little Brown. Um, when she sent me her um, critique letter, the first one, it was like 13 pages, single-spaced, and I might have cried. Uh, but it wasn't so much that I thought, it was, I cried because there was a lot to do and she was totally right. And I was like, oh God, she's so smart. And I just was like, I don't know if I can do this, but of course I did it. Um, and then she's like, here's another six page letter, single spaced. I was like, ah. Oh. But so it, it was sometimes difficult because she was so, like she believed in the book so much and she had so much vested interest in it because it was her first book and she really loved it. And every time she gave me a comment, I was like, I hate you, you're right. Um, so we had a, we got really close because we worked together. And she would just do stuff where she would say, I'm, you know, for instance, like, I feel like in this chapter, 
I'm, this part isn't clear. And then she would just ask the right questions and then I would just scurry off and try to answer them. So she didn't really have a heavy hand in the editing just in sort of leading me to what parts were still unclear or could be developed more or cut. Also, cutting is like the easiest thing to do. There's whole characters that used to exist that are just gone. So, but she was great. I love her. Allie Summer. Maybe one last question if anyone has one. Yeah. And I was curious whether you going into this book, your life in California was the research, or whether you did other other kinds of research to find your way to that. Uh, good. She wants to know if I did research to build the world. Um, a lot of writers, I think, feel they get inspired by research. That's not me. Um, it seems like. I just don't get any writing done if I'm doing the research. And I heard, I think Mark Sarvis, the writer, quoting Hannah Tinty, said research is a second draft problem, which I actually think is great advice because then you just put whatever you want on the page and then later you go back and see if it makes sense and what you can add to it. I kind of like that. Um, but I just basically used my own life um, and then I just played pretend. Um, I'm trying to think of anything that I really researched. My brother read it and made sure that the seasons and the plant growing was correct, and he helped me add some nature in there. <laughs> the trees, I don't even know. He was like, yeah, just put a plane tree in there. I was like, okay. But so I didn't, I really didn't do very much research at all, because there's actually not that much that could have been researched either, because I kind of imagined the world, but there wasn't a lot of kind of factual information that I, if I didn't know it, I could go and seek and find it. I just played pretend. Um, I'm going to sign books now. I know that a lot of people probably pre-ordered the book, so you have to buy another one. <laughs> and if you're like, I don't want to buy another one, you have to buy something else from Skylight. If you don't like to read, I feel really bad for you, <laughs> buy five greeting cards. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.